We apologize that this recording does not meet our standards of quality. However, we feel the material is important and pray that it will be helpful to you in your study of God's Word. I think uh, perhaps most of you know that in chapel we're going to be having a series on the distinctives of the college, and it uh, falls my lot to talk about one of those distinctives, one of those things that's very precious to my heart and to our school. And my subject is the matter of holiness. There are a number of ways that that subject could be approached and probably should be approached. But whenever I think about holiness, my mind and heart is always drawn back to the Old Testament, to the prophet Isaiah, and to the very unique experience that is recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. So as we think about the matter of holiness, personal holiness, I want you to take your Bible and uh, open it to Isaiah chapter 6. And I want us to look together at this most remarkable event that is recorded for us here that speaks so pointedly about the holiness of God. Now, admittedly, before we can fully get a grip on the significance of chapter 6, we need to go back into chapter 5 of Isaiah's prophecy. And so we're going to do that because I want to share with you some sort of background so you'll get an understanding of what's going on in chapter 6. If you go back to chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5, we get an introduction to a situation that exists to which Isaiah speaks directly. Obviously, the prophet of God was sent by God to speak to God's people Israel, God's people living in Judah. And his message to them is quite fascinating. You will know, I think if you know anything about the general tone of the book of Isaiah, that Isaiah is a prophet who brings warning about judgment. That judgment came later in the form of the Babylonian captivity, the devastation that occurred prior to that captivity to the land as well. But he is warning them. And part of that warning comes in the beginning of chapter 5 and then, of course, flows through to the very end of the chapter when it culminates. It begins, chapter 5 does, with a song. It's a kind of a funeral song, kind of a funeral dirge, kind of a sad song. And it goes like this, starting in verse 1. He says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. And then he describes the song. It goes like this, My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, expected it to produce good grapes, but produced only worthless grapes. That's the song. He said, it's not a very good song. I don't know if I like it. I understand that. Kind of a strange song. song about a vineyard. It's about a guy who built a vineyard, and he did everything to ensure that it would produce grapes, good grapes. I mean, he put it in a fertile hill. You might say it's a form of a folk song. He put it in a fertile hill. He dug all around it. What does that mean? Well, he put a moat around it. One of the problems you had in a in a vineyard was the encroachment of weeds and bugs and things like that that came along the ground, crawled into the vineyard and created problems. So they would dig a moat around it or sometimes put a wall of stone around it uh, to prevent that from happening. And so he put it in a fertile hill, in other words, a place where it should have grown well. He dug it around, there it would be preserved, removing all the stones, the stones that might impede the roots from going down in the ground and really being productive. 
He put the choicest vine. He put the best stock to produce the best grapes. He built a tower in the middle of it. That tower would be a watchtower from which uh, whoever was working there in the vineyard could look around, make sure animals didn't come and eat the grapes or uh, tear up the vine. The watchtower would be a very important thing. Then he hewed out a wine vat. That would be some kind of a, of a, of a pit. Uh, they could stomp the grapes so that they could produce the wine. And having done all of that, it says he expected it to produce good grapes, and it produced only bu'ushim in Hebrew. Funny word. Bu'ushim means sour berries. Not edible. And that's a sad story. In fact, this is a sad song. It's a song about a man who invested all of his livelihood and his fortune and his time and everything to produce something, and it produced the very opposite of what he wanted. Instead of good grapes, he got worthless berries, sour berries. Say, what's the point of the song? Verse 3 tells you, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done in it? The answer is nothing. Couldn't done anymore. Why then, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it bring forth sour berries? Is it my fault? Who's to blame? Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. There's something wrong with the vineyard. It's not my fault. I did everything I could. I'll remove its hedge or its moat or its protection. It'll be consumed. I'll break down its wall. It'll get trampled down. I'll lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns will come up. And I'll also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. That's judgment. Now, here's the point. Here's a man who built a vineyard, put it all together, did it the best way he could. It didn't bring forth anything but useless berries. He said, I'll destroy it. What's he talking about? Verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Wow. Pretty graphic. God said, I gave you everything, Israel. I put you in a fertile hill. He called it the land of milk and what? Honey. Most fertile land on the face of the earth. Right there in that little place we know as Israel. And I dug all around it. In other words, I gave you protection through all kinds of means. God protected his people. I removed the stones. I took out the pagan Gentiles out of the land. I made it clear for you. I put the choicest vine. I would say unarguably the finest strain of Homo sapiens happens to be the Jewish people. They're the noblest of human beings. Look at the accomplishments contributions they've made to the human race throughout the centuries and still make to this day. A very noble strain of humanity put in the prime place on the face of the earth, protected with all kinds of laws and rules. All of those who would have been a threat to them removed out of their way. He put a tower in the middle of it, probably in allusion to the city of Jerusalem, that very high place, the place of protection for the land. He hewed out a wine vat, could be a reference to the sacrificial ceremonial system by which God gave them a means to stay in communion with him. And God said, I gave you everything to produce righteousness, and instead, what did I get? Sour berries. I got nothing out of you, and I'm going to judge you. Down in verse 7 again, he says, I looked for justice, I found bloodshed. I looked for righteousness, and all I found was a cry of distress. That's a Hebrew play on words. I, I looked for mishpath, I found mispak. I looked for sedekah, I found se'ekah. Everything I expected, I didn't get. Everything I didn't expect, I got. You have disappointed me greatly. I'm going to judge you. So Isaiah is preaching a message of judgment. The judgment of God is coming. He's going to tear up that place called Judah, just like he tore up the vineyard in the story. 
Why is he going to do this? What were their sins? Verse 8 tells you the first sin. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. What's that? Grasping materialism. People amassing land and more land and more land and more land and houses and more houses and more houses, accumulating wealth to themselves. They obviously also violated the Sabbath year and they violated the Jubilee year. Remember on the Sabbath they had to let the land rest and they couldn't produce any crops or grow anything so the land could rejuvenate itself? And then every 50th year, the Jubilee year, every single thing that was owned by anybody went back to its original owner. So it was very hard to amass a fortune. It was counterproductive to amass things, to keep amassing and amassing, because sooner or later you're going to have to give it back to everybody and they got it back for nothing. So you had to think twice before you bought it at a price because you're going to have to give it back for nothing. And that's how God kept people from accumulating massive fortunes and the unequal distribution of wealth. But he says, you violated that, and they did. They violated the Sabbath rest. They violated the Jubilee year, and that's part of the reason they had to spend 70 years in captivity to pay back all those years they had violated. And God said, I'll make the land rest. I'll take you out of it for 70 years, and I'll get back those things that you have forfeited. And I'll take all the land, and you'll have none of it, and you'll go off into captivity as slaves, and you'll come back 70 years later, and you'll own absolutely nothing. What they wouldn't give God, God took. They had gotten into materialism. The second sin is mentioned in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. And then he talks about their banquets and the lyre and the harp, the tambourine, the flute and the wine, and they don't pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. What's the work of His hands? The human body. They get involved in dissipation. They get involved in drunkenness, wild parties. This is the good time Charlie's. This is the thank God it's Friday, folks. This is the singles bar, only a very ancient one. And he says in verse 13, they're going to go into exile for that. They're going to go into exile for their dissipation, immorality, wild parties, drunkenness. What characterized these people? Grasping materialism and drunken pleasure-seeking. He goes down a little further into verse 18. He names another sin. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood, and sin is with cart ropes. A very graphic description. I won't go into all the detail, but simply it means this. He pictures these people as laden with a burden of sin, and they're like a beast, they're like a big ox who's tied to a cart. The cart's full of sin, and they're dragging it around with them. It's kind of like a parade, and they're the float. You know how you go to one of those parades, like the the New Year's Day parade in Pasadena, Rose Parade, and they carry all these floats? Well, that's what he's saying. He's saying you're parading around carrying your sin as if it were a badge of your honor. You're pulling around this cartload of sin. You're putting notches on your belt for your sin. You're you're patting yourself on the back and parading your, your sin and your wickedness. This is defiant sinfulness. This is not just sinfulness, but this is being sinful and being proud about it. Reminds me of the gay, lesbian pride parade, where people parade and carry around their sin as if it were something to be proud about. They, they march down the street as it were pulling a cart by ropes tied to them, carrying the boatload of their sin and iniquity. This culture had reached the point of materialism, drunken pleasure-seeking, and a point in which they were proud about their sin and wanted to parade it before other people as a badge of their personal achievement. Obstinate, defiant sin. Verse 20 gives us the next in their sin. 
pattern. They had, it says they had come to the point, woe to those. Each of these sins introduced by the word woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What's that? That's a perversion. That's the reversing of all values. That's the twisting and perverting. That's the reprobate mind where all of a sudden good is evil, evil is good. Everything is reversed. Sweet is bitter, bitter is sweet. Reversing all morals. Does this stuff start to sound familiar to you? Does this sound a little bit like our culture? Would you say we're characterized by grasping materialism, people accumulating and accumulating and accumulating wealth? Would you say we're characterized by drunken pleasure-seeking? We're characterized by this kind of sinfulness in which there's no shame. Everybody wants to do what they do their way and be proud about it and haul it around as if it were something to put on display. Would you say our culture is characterized by a twisting and perverting and reversing of all moral values? Certainly so. The next one comes in verse 21, another woe. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Arrogant conceit. Arrogant conceit. They thought they had all the answers. Certainly that's true of our time. Sometimes I think if I hear another talk show and another opinion, I'm going to get sick. Everybody has a right to his opinion today. Everybody's opinion is as valid as everybody else's. Everybody's got all the answers. They're wise in their own eyes. They're clever in their own sight. This is arrogant conceit. They submit to nobody. They listen to nobody. They do it their way. They think they have all the answers. And morality and truth becomes a matter of human opinion. Verse 22 gives us the last one of the sins that's listed here. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. That's quite interesting. The word heroes and the word valiant men is both in the Hebrew a word used for leaders. Leaders. What you have here is corrupt leadership. Show you how corrupt they are. Verse 23, they'll justify a wicked person for a bribe, and they even take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Perverted justice. Wicked leaders. Wicked politicians. Perverted judges. All of that kind of thing. What were the sins of Israel? Just those things right there. Drunken pleasure-seeking. Grasping materialism. Things that we're very used to. Parading sin around as if it was something to be proud about. Perverting morality so that what is really evil is called good. Being clever and conceited in your own eyes and having perverted leadership. You know what God did to Judah because of that? He destroyed them. And I would submit to you, young people, that America is committing all of those sins, at least to the equal of the, of the way they were committed then. Would you not agree with that? And if God is to be consistent with Himself and He destroyed Judah because of those sins, you can be sure that God is going to destroy America for the same things because He's the same God. We're engaged in the same kinds of sins. Now, the question that brings us into chapter 6 is very important. As you come to the end of chapter 5, God starts to talk about judgment. And He says, you're going to get it for all of this. By the way, the word woe means damn, curse, condemn, sentence to judgment. You're going to be condemned and damned and sentenced to judgment for this. Bottom line at the end of verse 24, because you've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and you've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You've disobeyed God and God's going to judge you. And from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, that judgment is laid out. He talks about a hostile, horrible, frightening army that is going to come in and wipe you out. It's going to roar. It's going to tear and growl. It's going to shred you. There's going to be a terrible darkness over the land when judgment falls. Now, 
immediate question takes us into chapter 6. What kind of person is God looking for in a time like this? What kind of person is God looking for to go to a nation in crisis? We live in a time not unlike Isaiah's time. And the question is, what kind of person does God want? What kind of person is He looking for to confront this kind of culture? We live in this culture, a culture that stands on the brink of the judgment of God. You look at our nation and you have to say, we are literally lost in materialism. We are lost in immorality and sexual perversion. We have twisted and perverted morality beyond description. There's a question whether you can even get justice anymore. It seems as though those who commit the most heinous crimes somehow get off, and those who may be only minimally guilty of something find life becomes complicated and almost unbearable as the society turns against them even at a legal level. And what can't be accomplished through criminal courts can very often be accomplished to devastate someone through lawsuits in a civil court. It seems like everything is twisted and everything is perverted and there's little to be helped at the level of leadership. What kind of people is God looking for to straighten this out, to confront this culture? Well, let's find out as we go into chapter 6 because we're going to find out what kind of man God was looking for. Chapter 6 opens with these words. In the year of King Isaiah's death, you say, is that important? It is if your name is Isaiah. Pretty significant year. And it is in general anyway. Let me tell you why. King Isaiah died in 740 B.C. He died after 52 years of rule. 52 years. You know how he died? He got very proud about his accomplishments. 52 years. Can you imagine having the same president for 52 years? And you know what happened during Isaiah's reign? Everything was good. There was peace in the land. They had a sort of a powerful standing army, and so they had a strong position in the Cold War, and nobody attacked them. There was tremendous prosperity in the land. I mean, the, the crops were all coming in. Everything was going great. They were successful in all their enterprises. Uh, it was a good time, and Isaiah was a very, very capable leader. Nobody wanted to change him. Nobody moved against him. Nobody knocked him off. Everything was successful. Everything was prosperous. They were at the height of their prosperity under this guy. And as they were declining morally, and as they were declining in terms of their commitment to God spiritually, they still were doing so well economically, so well militarily, so well socially, that they assumed that God's hand of blessing was still on them. And so as they continued to commit their sins and to escalate their sinfulness, they felt secure. And the point of their security was the fact that Isaiah was still on the throne, and that must mean God is still on our side because everything's going along just super. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah died. And it shook the whole nation because it was as if they knew God had just taken off his hand of blessing. How did Isaiah die? God killed him with leprosy. That's how he died. God killed him with leprosy. He got too proud, and God took his life. You can read 2 Chronicles 26. It'll tell you about it. And all of a sudden, he's dead. And guess what else? King Tiglath-Pileser is up on the north, and he's sitting there ready to pounce. And the people are frenzied and panicked. The king is dead. The enemy's on the border. 
the nation is in moral disaster, and there's a panic. So what does Isaiah do? He says, i got to check in with God. i got to go see God. Where is he going to go? He goes to the temple. So he says, in the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. He went to find the Lord. He wanted to check in and say, what's going on, God? Isaiah's dead. The enemy's on the border. The nation is in moral decline. Spiritually, it's zero. What's happening? He went to check in with God. And when he got there, he saw the Lord, and he had an unbelievable experience. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, you have to understand, he's going to have a vision. This is a vision here. It's not just a physical thing that you and I or anybody else can see in the natural. It's not a dream that is something that happens in the mind that isn't at all real. It is somewhere between the the real and the dream and has maybe elements of both. I can't describe it any further than that, never having had one. It's reality, but it's reality in the supernatural. And I saw the Lord, he says, in the temple. I went there, obviously, to pray. I saw the Lord, and He was lofty and exalted, or high and lifted up. I saw God on His throne, lifted up. That's very important. He needed to see God that way. Why? Because everything was disintegrating. The king was dead, the nation was in disaster, and it was important to check in with God and find Him still sitting on the throne, right? I mean, wouldn't it have been awful if he said, I saw the throne and God was gone and somebody else was there? But he's saying, I saw the throne and God was on it. And so I knew immediately that God was still what? In control. Very comforting. The first response then of Isaiah must have been a sigh of relief. You're still on the throne. You're still sovereign. You're still high and lifted up. You're still exalted. You're still there. And so I saw a sovereign God is what he's saying. I saw God still ruling. I saw God still controlling the affairs of men. I saw God still in charge of everything. And there was comfort in that. There was great comfort in that. God hadn't abdicated his throne. It hadn't begun to disintegrate underneath him. Somebody else hadn't usurped it. God was still sovereign, still in charge, sitting right there ruling over the whole universe. And then there was a second element, and I saw his train, the train of his robe, like a bridal gown, filling the temple. Down from that throne came this emanating train, as it were. This would be like the Shekinah glory. The very glory of God comes down, as it were, off the throne and just fills the whole temple. And what is he seeing there? He saw God not only as sovereign, but he saw God as all-glorious. In other words, he saw God in the fullness of his person. He saw God in the fullness of His glory, the fullness of His person. So God was still sovereign, and God was still the same God. He hadn't abdicated the throne, and He hadn't changed His nature. He hadn't become something different. God was still there, and He was still pure, and He was still all-glorious, and still majestic, and still in charge. And then as he looked at the vision, in verse 2, he saw seraphim, and the seraphim were standing above God. 
Each of them had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. What a fascinating thing. He saw seraphim who appear in the Scripture as angels who guard the glory of God, who attend to God, and are associated with His glorious presence. And he saw the seraphim, and he noted that they had six wings. I've always been fascinated by it. Two of the wings were used to cover their face. Why? Because angels are created beings, right? And no created being, according to Exodus, can look on God and live. A created being who saw the full effulgence of the glory of God would be consumed by its very, very fiery reality. And so even the angels close to God cover themselves so that they are not consumed by looking on the full glory of God. It would be as if you stood next to the sun and gazed at it. It would consume you, burn your eyes to a crisp. And then it says, with two they covered their feet. Why? Because the place in which they stood was holy. And so you see four wings associated with worship. The two that covered their face veiled the holiness of God. The two that covered their feet kept them from trampling on the holiness of God. And then with two it says they hovered. And it uses a Hebrew word of hovering like a celestial helicopter. Just hovering. Why were they hovering? Why were they in the motion position? Because they were ready to be dispatched. If God wanted them to do something, He'd send them and they'd be gone in a split second. And so there He saw not only the majesty of God and not only the personhood of God represented in His glory, but He saw the worship of God. And not only did He see the worship of God, that is those angelic beings giving God full worship and full honor and full respect, but there were they who were waiting to serve God. So he realized the angels are still in their rightful position, worshiping and serving God. Everything is intact. That's the point. I see God, and God is who He ought to be, and the scene is as it ought to be. God is on His throne. God is who He is. The angels are where they should be, and they are worshiping, and they are waiting to do His bidding. Everything's okay in heaven. Sometimes when you look at the world, you need to go back and check in with heaven, don't you? I know myself, I continually look at this society in which we live, and there's something in me that wants to run from it. The society is disintegrating so fast. I can only imagine, young people, what it's going to be like four years from now when you freshmen who've just arrived leave this place. I would venture to say that things are changing so fast that the world will be significantly different than what you know even now in four years, to say nothing of another generation. And so we need to check in with heaven from time to time and make sure nothing's changed up there. There's something amazingly unique that comes into play in the scene as you come to verse 3. These seraphim begin to call back and forth in an antiphonal way. And they call out to one another back and forth and listen to what they say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. One says it and then another says it back and then another says it back and it's just echoing and bouncing back. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy. That is the only attribute of God ever repeated three times in the Bible. We say God is light, but nowhere in Scripture does it ever say light, light, light. We say God is love. John said that, but nowhere does it say God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 grace, 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 justice, 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 or anything else. The only attribute that is ever repeated three times is His holiness. Why? Because it is the most essential characteristic of God. What do you mean by that? It is that which is most basically identified as God. What does holy mean? Separate. 
And what they're saying is God is utterly other than, separate from you and your world and sin. To be holy means to be separated from sin. God is utterly separated. He is unaffected by the decay. He is untouched like a sunbeam that shines into a dump. It is unpolluted. He may see it and he may understand it. And he may oversee it, but it does not touch him. He is utterly separate. And God knew that that's what Isaiah needed to see. He needed a vision of a holy God. Say, why? Let me tell you, young people. You will, believe me, get caught up in the unholy decline of a culture unless you continually get a vision of the holiness of God so that you can stay on the proper footing. You understand that? And I'll tell you, there's too little preaching on this in our culture. Far too little. All of these relational sermons and all of these these shallow kind of sermons and all of these evangelistic sermons that are continually filling up most of the pulpits of our land mean that people, for the most part, never are given truth out of the Word that continually exalts, magnifies, enlarges the picture they have of the holiness of God. And because they focus so often on fixing their own lives without a proper vision of God, the standard becomes them and not Him. It's absolutely essential that in any Christian's experience there be a continuing understanding of the holiness of God because that's the plumb line against which we must always measure the culture in which we live. I become offended by the culture because I comprehend the holiness of God. If I don't understand how holy God is, I don't know how rotten my society is, and I can more easily become victimized by it. So he was given a vision of the holiness of God because that's the, that's the plumb line. That's the standard. That's the truth against which all wickedness is measured. And so he hears these angels saying, holy, 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 and is reminded that God is utterly separate from sin. He is utterly holy. And look at verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds in the temple trembled at the voice of him who called out, and the temple was filled with smoke. Boy, this is getting serious. This vision is turning serious. The whole building begins to shake. And the place is filled with smoke. Why? Our God is a consuming fire. Why Why the smoke? Because God is being represented as fire. Why? Because He's holy and His holiness will eventually consume wickedness. And so the smoke begins to fill the place. The place begins to shake. Now what is Isaiah's response? Verse 5. Then I said... What do you think he said? Woe is me, for I'm ruined. What an interesting comment. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Stop at that point. What's he talking about? You know, I just finished writing a book called Charismatic Chaos. I've been preaching on it. And I came across a number of people who went to heaven and talked to God. Every one of them had basically the same reaction. Well, I talked to God and He told me this and I told Him this and then He told me this and we had a great conversation. And then they come back to earth and they tell all about it. Well, that's not quite like Isaiah's experience. 
Isaiah didn't say, I saw the Lord, and I saw Him high and lifted up, and I saw His glory, and uh, I was exposed to His holiness, and I heard the angels crying about His holiness, and the whole place shook, and it was filled with smoke, and I said, I'm going on Christian TV. I'm going, I'm going to tell everybody, I'm going on the road, man. I can make a killing on this deal. The man who went to heaven and saw the holiness of God. That wasn't his reaction. He didn't say, now, boy, I must be something special. Look what I got to see. How many of you have seen that? I'm somebody special. He didn't say that. What he said was this. Woe is me. What does the word woe mean? He just used it six times in, in chapter 5. What does it mean? Condemn, damn, curse, judge. He says, God, damn me, condemn me, judge me, send me to hell. For I'm, Hebrew word, disintegrating. I'm going to pieces. I'm collapsing. I'm falling apart. I'm melting. I'm, I'm destroyed by this. You say, what is he saying? Listen very carefully. This is the whole point. Any person who encounters a vision, a comprehension of the holiness of God is personally devastated. Devastated. Not exalted. Devastated. Why? Because when you see how holy God is, and you really honestly see that, all you can see about yourself is your what? Your sin. That's all. That's all you can see. Manoah, the father of Samson, came home one day, says to his wife, We'll die. She says, What do you mean we'll die? He says, I saw the Lord. We'll die. Why would he have that reaction? Why didn't he say, I think I'll write a book about it. Why did he say, I saw the Lord, we'll die? Because he said, I saw the Lord, guess what? He must have seen me. And when I saw him, I saw holiness. But I know when he saw me, he saw, I'm dead. That's what a vision of the holiness of God produces. That's what it produces. Nadab and Abihu tried to mess around with the holiness of God. He killed them. There was a little well-meaning guy. And remember the Jews were, Numbers chapter 4, you know, banging along with the, with the cart, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which they weren't supposed to do, supposed to be carried on poles on the shoulders of the people who were designed to do that. And it starts to fall off the cart, and this little guy goes, oh, the one at the fall? Dead. Cinders. You say, well, what kind of God kills somebody for trying to keep the thing from hitting the ground? God is absolutely holy. Shouldn't have been on a cart to start with. Oh, they put it on a new cart thinking that would do it. But God didn't want it on a cart. You see, you do what God wants. You mess with God's holiness. You can be gone very fast. God is a holy God. A true vision of the holiness of God should put fear in your hearts. Job said, I'd heard of you with a hearing in my ear. Job 42. Now my eye sees you. And what was his response? I repent. I hate myself. I repent in dust and ashes. I saw you. That means you saw me. I'm dead. Forgive me. You go into the New Testament. Peter's trying to fish. You know, Peter tried to catch fish after he was called into the ministry and the Lord rerouted all the fish and he could never catch them. 
So one day they're out there fishing. Jesus shows up. Says, so why don't you try the other side of the boat? Can you imagine fishing all night, catching nothing, and have some guy on the shore say that to you? What does he think? The fish know one side from the other, or the boat sits in one spot? What kind of a statement is that? But Jesus spoke with such authority. Those guys hopped two, threw all the nets out on one side. They got so many fish, they couldn't even get them in the boat. God just went, all the fish in the whole place went, yish, to that side of the boat, and just sat there until they were done, you know, getting taken out. The Lord controlled all that. And then you know what Peter, Peter said? He knew it was the Lord. I mean, he knew it was the Lord, and only the Lord controls fish like that. And what did he say? What a miracle. Wow. Did you guys see that? You know what he said? Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Ooh, what a strange reaction. Once he knew it was the Lord, he saw it was the Lord, the Lord of creation, the Lord who controls the fish. He knew that he was exposed. And he said, get out of my presence. I know you can see my sin. Anybody who has a vision of God is overwhelmed with their sinfulness. And young people, I want to tell you something very, very simple in the Christian life. Until you have a vision of God, you will never be overwhelmed with your sinfulness. And until you're overwhelmed with your sinfulness, you'll never properly deal with it. And until you properly deal with it, you'll never be useful to God to the degree that he wants to use you. And it all goes back to the vision of God. That's why it's crucial that we understand the holiness of God. So what does Isaiah say? Woe is me, I'm ruined. And then he says, I'm a man with a dirty mouth, literally. You say, now wait a minute. You got a bad self-image, you need help. You'll never cut it in the ministry like that. You can't go around mealy-mouthing around about yourself. I got a dirty mouth. You say, wait a minute, you got the best mouth in the land, you're a prophet, you talk, God talks. You have a good mouth. I mean, there's some bad mouths, but not yours. What is, what is he saying that for? And why is he saying, I live among a whole people with dirty mouths? I'll tell you why. Because that human instrument in your body, which more than any other betrays the sin of your heart, is your mouth. That's right. Out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth talks. There are certain things that you might like to do, but you can't do them. But there's nothing you can't say. I mean, if you had the opportunity, your hands might pick up some gold and steal it. If you had the opportunity, your feet might go somewhere and take your body to do something you shouldn't do. But maybe you don't have the opportunity. But let me tell you something, people. You got the opportunity anytime, any place to say absolutely anything your mouth wants to say. And so it is that which most truly reveals the wickedness of your heart. So all he was saying is, I know I'm a sinner, and I know it because of what comes out of my mouth. I'm wretched. Kill me, God. Wipe me out. You say, well, this guy's in pretty bad shape. Yeah, you say, why does he feel like this? End of verse 5. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, once you get a vision of God, you understand your sinfulness. Truly. And young people, I say it again, I really do believe that the issue in holy living, and I want you to get this, the issue in holy living is not how well you understand yourself. You hear that? It's not how well you understand yourself. It's not how well you understand sanctification theology. The issue in holy living is how well you understand whom? God. 
and how you understand His holiness and how zealously and jealously you guard His holiness and how you exalt His holiness. That's what controls what you do. I'd be so, so straightforward and basic as to say this. You will live out in your daily living your theology of God. You'll live it out. Whatever it is that you believe to be true about God will control how you live. And if you live an unholy, sinful, unrighteous life, it is simply because you do not have a proper grasp on the holiness of God, because if you did, you wouldn't live like that. You wouldn't live like that. You'd have a healthy fear. Over and over again, the Old Testament says, fear the Lord, doesn't it? You need to have a healthy fear. Sure, we've, we serve God out of love, but also out of fear. You know, I mean, uh, God is to be feared. You go back in the Old Testament, you see people die. They violate God, they die. You say, yeah, but everybody doesn't die. No, everybody doesn't die. People say, well, I always hear this question from people who are not Christians. They say, well, what kind of a God goes around killing people? What kind of a God just wipes out a nation over here and has a bear run out of the woods and kill 42 little guys? And what kind of a God opens up the ground and swallows up a couple of sinners? And what kind of a God is that? And even the liberal theologians have decided that there's one God for the Old Testament and a completely different one for the New. Because they can't explain the one in the Old. However, if they're careful, they're going to find the same one working in the New. Ananias and Sapphira showed up for church one day, put their money in the offering, and dropped dead. God killed both of them in front of the whole church. Had a tremendous effect on the next week's offering. <laughs> same God. Same God. Well, why does God do that? Why does God do that? People say, and my answer is always this. You tell me, I'll ask you another question. Uh, it isn't, why does God kill a few people? The other question is, why does God let anybody live? Right? That's the real question. Because every one of us ought to be killed. The wages of sin is what? Death, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Old Testament, New Testament, same principle. The question isn't, why did somebody die? The question is, why did anybody live? The question is, why am I still alive? I violated the holiness of God. Isaiah knew he should be dead. God doesn't kill everybody because he's gracious, but every once in a while he kills somebody just to remind everybody of what they all deserve. And I think when Ananias and Sapphira died, I'm telling you, that Sunday when they died because they didn't give what they promised the Lord, there were a lot of people scrambling through that congregation saying, ooh, man, we better get out of here quick or we're going to die too because we did the same thing. God doesn't kill everybody who deserves to die, but periodically he does. You say, does he still do that? Sure, there's no reason to believe he doesn't. In Corinth, some people died because of the way they abused the Lord's table. Not all of them. At the end of 1 John, there are some people who die. And you can pray for them all you want. They're believers, but they've sinned a sin unto death, and the Lord's going to take them, and it's going to be an illustration to all the rest of you of what you deserve. You see, God is a holy God who has given us enough evidence to indicate that He's very serious about holiness, and we ought to have a healthy fear of Him. If I'm going to live a holy life, yes, I can be motivated out of my love for God on the one hand, but I also have to be motivated out of my healthy fear of God. That He is a God who has every right to destroy me. It's only His grace that lets me live. Wherever Jesus went in the New Testament, people were frightened. Think about the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee in that little boat. And they're bouncing along, and it's a terrible storm. And the Bible says they were in this little boat, and Jesus was asleep. He must have been very tired. Can you imagine that? Sleeping in a storm? What was even more amazing was He was sleeping, apparently, with His head on a piece of wood. 
And more amazing than that, he was sleeping in a boat that was now half filled with water. And more amazing than that, he was sleeping under that condition with a bunch of screaming, moaning disciples who thought they were going to drown. Now, you've got to be very tired to sleep through all that. And the Bible says that they were afraid. They were afraid. And so they awakened Jesus and they said, don't you care we're going to drown? Remember that? And Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. And he reached out over the edge of the boat and he went, shh. And the storm stopped. And the ripples didn't even run to the shore. They just went, shh. And it was like glass. And then the Bible says they were exceedingly afraid. <laughs> See, what's worse than having a storm outside your boat is having God in your boat. <laughs> because now you're exposed. Now you're exposed. This is only God can do. This is God. <laughs> you know, cover up. He can see me. He knows my sin. He knows my wretchedness. I'm done. I'm doomed. I'm damned. The little lady, you know, crawled through the crowd, grabbed the hem of his garment. He healed her. The Bible says she was terrorized. She was terrorized. Because she knew only God could do it. And she knew he could see her. And he could see her heart. So he had the right reaction. If you want to live a holy life, you have to see a holy God for who he is and live in the light of his holiness. But look at this. Verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth. Can you imagine putting a hot coal off a barbecue in your mouth? Oh, man. And he said, it's touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? God doesn't leave the confessed sinner in his state of iniquity. What does he do? He cleanses it. This is the path of holiness, young people. A vision of the holiness of God. A vision of my own sinfulness. I come to God in utter abandonment, recognizing my sin. And in the recognition and confession of my sin and my unworthiness... And the fact that I deserve judgment, God comes and what? Forgives. Cleanses me. That's the path. That's the pathway to holiness. What follows is wonderful. We end with this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, All right, I got a corrupt, wretched, fouled up culture. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The Trinity. Now I need somebody to go. Who's going to go? Well, you say, well, you can't use Isaiah. He ought to be killed. Can't use him. He's got a dirty mouth. Can't use that guy. But look what Isaiah says. Then said I, here am I, send me. Now I've heard people preach and say, Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. I, I doubt it. I don't think he was feeling pretty very strong about this. I think he probably said uh, something like... Uh, 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 there's nobody else around, you know. So, I'm, 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 I'm here. You could uh, send me, you know. I mean, I, it's got to be a pretty humble, reluctant response, right? I mean, he just said he's a dirty mouth prophet who ought to be damned. Not exactly credentials you want to put on your seminary application. You could send me. 
I love this. Verse 9. And he said, you're it. Go. Tell this people. Is that amazing? Ask yourself a question. What kind of people is God looking for to reach a society in crisis? Intellectuals? Creative people, innovative, entrepreneurial, clever? How about forgiven? How about people who have a vision of God, see the wretchedness of their own life, accept His gracious forgiveness, and then humbly say, I'm willing to go? That's the kind of people He's looking for. If you want to be useful in the world, and the world is going to be more desperate when you leave here than it is now, even if you're leaving the end of this year, if you want to be useful in this world, it's going to be in direct proportion to the vision of God which you have and which you see as holiness, the way that applies to your own life in which you confront your own sinfulness and allow God to come in and cleanse that out of your life and then in humility offer yourself back in service as a cleansed vessel who now lives in the light of the holiness of God. At that particular point, you become useful to God for His kingdom's sake. He's looking for people who can reach a materialistic, sex-mad, perverted, drunken, pleasure-seeking society full of people who are arrogant in their own conceit, have perverted all moral values, have corrupted leadership, and really are headed toward hell on a grease slide. And he's saying, the kind of people I want aren't perfect people. They aren't any other than those who are willing to see a vision of my holiness, fall on their face and recognize their sin, accept my cleansing, and go humbly as my faithful servant. You say, well, will I have success? Ah. Remember what he said to Isaiah? Nobody's going to listen to you. You say, what? That's right. Nobody's going to listen to you. Except a tenth, he says. There'll be a little remnant. You just be faithful. They're out there. God wants to use you to reach that remnant that are out there. Most people, they won't listen. But some will. If you want to be God's servant to reach them, this is the path. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Considering your word and your truth, confirm it to our hearts. Give us a vision of your holiness. Even as we read the Bible daily, as we read your word, help us to be looking for those things which reveal your absolute holy purity to us so that we never lower our standards from the standard which you have set. Make us useful because we have seen ourselves for who we are confessed and repented of our sin and rendered ourselves your servants. For Jesus' sake, amen.